Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, here we go. Enough of the music, you guys. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast, where we're going to get into a little bit of opinion scholarship as we as we do. Today, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about David Hume, the philosopher David Hume. Um, I've brought up David Hume a time or two in the past, and I'll mention again what I usually bring up when he comes up. But the truth is, I got exposed to Hume only. Only a little bit in college. I didn't really dive into it. So uh, there's many people like that that I probably should and haven't. So this was my first kind of deepish dive into David Hume. Um, the reason I thought it was worth doing is because this particular um, piece of, of philosophy is called Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. So the topic is philosophy of religion in a manner of speaking. And so that attracts me. That That's what I'm into. So um, where I didn't get into any other Hume, I decided this was probably worth doing. So before I jump in and talk about what I want to talk about, um, I want to bring up Hume in general. When I brought Hume up in the past, it's the ought from the is uh, question. So if you guys remember, um, I've said it many times, can you... Can is it possible by your experience of the world, by looking around, observing your life and the world around you, is it possible for you to determine what you ought to do based upon the facts of the world? Can you derive an ought from an is? This is David Hume's um, most memorable question, philosophical question, and this we brought up before. It's a question that surrounds morality. Can you derive an ought from an is? Is there anything about the way the world is that helps you understand what you ought to do, what you ought to value? You know, what's good and what's evil? Is there anything about the way the world is that will help you to, to determine that or to answer that question? And it's very difficult. Uh, I don't know whether whether I can wholeheartedly say yes or no. Um, I think I have some ideas about what you can observe in in you know, nature that might help you along those lines, but I haven't thought thought it well out. You know, so I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to um, go t- too deeply. But on the surface, it seems overwhelmingly in favor of the idea that you can't derive an ought from an is. And this is Hume's argument: there is nothing about the facts of the world that help you to to determine what you should do with your life. So it's a moral question, and. Because it's a moral question, it's associated with religion. I mean, mor- morality is associated with religion throughout the history of human beings um, because this 
the rules, the system of morality is something that we assume or believe um, comes from God in some way. Um, what we're going to talk about today, I think, falls along these same lines, and it makes sense. You know, these are both David Hume's ideas we're talking about. Um, this whole idea of can you derive an ought from an is is going to show up in this piece, but a little reformatted a little bit. Rather than saying, can you derive an ought from an is, what this piece is saying is, is there anything about the way the world is that tells you anything about God? Right? It's not just strictly about morality, what you should do or ought to do. In this case, it's when you look around and you examine your experience of being alive and existing in the world, is there anything about the facts of the world that tell you whether God exists or anything at all about God, right? Is you know, it's one thing to know uh, or to believe that God is a reality. It's another thing to know anything specifically about God. And you might say, "Yeah, I'm convinced that God exists, but I can't tell you anything at all about what God might be." That's kind of a position I'm familiar with. It's I have some sympathy for that position. And so, what we're going to do, um, we've done this before when we when we talked about Plato, because Plato wrote in dialogues, this piece is a dialogue. It's actually a platonic dialogue. It's formatted exactly like Plato did, having a conversation between, you know, multiple people with, you know, divergent ideas uh, or personalities and talking through a, a topic. And, and, and so that way you get some resistance from some of the other people. You kind of play out the real life you know, back and forth dialogue, dialogos that's happening between these people. And it, it, it's helpful to learn that way rather than just learning facts or uh, learning, you know, an argument that a philosopher has thought out. This way it's more natural and I think um, there's some benefits to it. And this is why Hume adopted this strategy to talk about natural religion. This dialogue was written in 1779. And it's, it's really taking place between three three individuals. Cleanthes is the first one. Now, he's an actual historical person. He's a Stoic philosopher, ancient Greek philosopher from the third century BC. And as a Stoic, he was somebody that believed um, that God is something like a universal mind, but that it's inseparable from matter. So mind and matter um, aren't you know, divisible uh, exactly. They're kind of inseparable. They're integrated somehow. So this is kind of an interesting uh, take. Seems kind of like a, a natural take to me, but it's interesting because since the time of Descartes anyway, this dualism, this separation between uh, mind and body has been such a part of our Western tradition. And it even goes back into, you know, uh, the Christian, early Christian era where, where the monks believed that they needed to become more spiritual and to accomplish that they had to become less physical. And so it, there was this idea of a division between spirit or mind and body. And, uh, and the body is matter, it's material. And so it's not as perfect, it's not as holy. So we have to strive away from the physical to get more in touch with the spiritual and that, uh, you know, so there's a, a very cut and dry division between the good or spiritual existence and the tainted or bad physical existence. Um, so the Stoics didn't, didn't have this sort of uh, separation. The next person is um, Philo, 
and Philo is a little bit of a later philosopher, uh, Philo of Alexandria. He was actually a Hellenic Jew. So, um, you know, he was, uh, he grew up in, in basically a combination of um, Jewish culture and tradition and Greek culture and tradition. He's from the first century AD. So Philo is, you know, from the time of Christ. And as a Jew, he's somebody who's more um, traditional, you might say. He sees God as um, entirely transcendent, so so not material at all. God is spirit, something um, separate from and, and above the material world somehow. And then the third person is uh, Demea. And I think Demea is a, a female, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm going to assume she is. Demea argues that God is basically unknowable. So if God exists, we can't know anything about God. Um, you can't use your rationality, your reason, you know, anything that you know about yourself or the world around you to know anything at all about God. By definition, God is unknowable. So these three people are having the conversation. Cleanthes, Philo, and Demea. All right, so before I talk about um, the conversation that these three people have, they're talking about natural religion. So you might wonder, what is that? What is natural religion? Um, is it like nature religions, like the kind of thing that comes to mind when you think of um, tribes in sub-Saharan Africa or Native American tribes or uh, Australian Aboriginal tribes or, or something where they're living very close to nature? Um, they have a kind of an animistic religion, or the spirits of nature and that sort of thing. Is that what we mean when we're talking about natural religion? I don't think so. Not in this case. I don't think so. In this case, when we're talking about natural religion, we go back to David Hume's question. Is there anything that we can deduce from nature, from the laws of nature, from our experience of the world that tells us anything at all about God? If we were a blank slate and we didn't have any religious knowledge at all, no tradition, we never thought about these ideas before, could we, based upon our experience of the world, come up with some idea or knowledge about God. It's kind of hard to argue that you can. There are definitely some, some ways um, that we can put some pressure on that idea. There are some ways that, that you might imagine it, could, it can occur. But I think the biggest thing to remember here is that it did. Historically, this is exactly this did happen. Human beings, you know, didn't always have religion, um, hypothetically. Maybe even when we were pre-human hominids or something, we, we weren't sophisticated enough to think abstractly, to have this, the capacity to have an idea about God. There must have been a time when the species that, that is or became human beings didn't have an idea of God, and we developed one. So how did that happen? All right, so we'll get into it. I'm going to start with a couple of quotes. The first one is in this um, dialogue. Uh, it's a um, quote by another philosopher called Seneca. And uh, I thought it was interesting, so I'm going to read it to you. To know God is to worship him. All other worship is absurd. To know God is to worship him. So we're not talking about sacrifice of any kind. We're not talking about prayer, music, we're not talking about any of the things that you traditionally come to mind when you think about worshiping God, to acknowledge God, to praise God, to um, uh, thank God, all of that sort of stuff. Seneca says this happens through knowing God. Anything else you do is absurd. 
So think about that for a bit. So the next quote I want to read to you is from the Bible. And this has to do with this idea of a natural religion. And it comes from St. Paul, from the uh, book of Romans. Um, and it goes like this. St. Paul says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. The invisible things of him are understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that's from Romans 1. What's Paul saying here? He's talking about what can be known of God, exactly like David Hume asked, what can be known of God by our experience in the world. And Paul's basically saying that God exists and that God is good. This is revealed to all people and all faiths because that which may be known of God is manifest in them so in themselves, in the people themselves who, who um, have religious ideas or follow a religious faith, they, they do so because there's something within them that is evidence or the proof of that, of the existence of God and the fact that God is good. So I don't know what, that, what comes to mind to you, but what comes to my mind is if I'm examining within myself, looking for God, I immediately reach for things like my life. You know, my sentience, my consciousness, that which allows me to be alive, to, to, to operate this meat vehicle that I'm in, to have thoughts, to plan for the future, um, to have, you know, mystical experience. That my life, the force of my of being, my life and my consciousness are something like the spirit that we seek for when we're talking about God. That's within me. And then he says, the invisible things of him, right? So he's talking about you know, the things of God are understood by the things that are made. So we look around at the physical world and there's some proof here because there's a physical reality that there's something behind it, that there's something that caused it, that there's some eternal power in Godhead, as St. Paul says, um, prerequisite for the reality that we see around us. So, the fact of our life, the fact of the existence of, of reality and the cosmos, that these are self-evident you know, proofs of the existence of God. So according to the Bible, natural religion is possible at least, at least to that level. Now I want to read a quote from Hume in this dialogue that I just couldn't leave out but didn't exactly know where to fit it in. So I'll read it to you. It goes, Supposing a God... Is it possible for him to give stronger proofs of his existence than what appear on the whole face of nature? And when you look around at the beauty and the majesty, the complexity, the intricacy of your body, of the physical world, of the cosmos, is there any stronger proof that God exists than just observing all of that, experiencing all of that? Maybe not. And this is exactly what natural religion is about. When you look around at nature, lots of things happen. Many, most times, oftentimes, we're struck with feelings of awe. You know, when you when you look out at the ocean for the first time, when you when you see the mountains for the first time, you know, maybe when you visit the high desert for the first time, and you're just in awe of the beauty of nature. What is that? It's not just a fact. It's something strange. 
It's something spiritual. The feeling of awe is something that makes you think about something greater than yourself. It makes you connect with something greater than yourself. But then there's also this aspect of beauty and the aspect of design. You know, this is what people say in the modern world when they talk about the universe being fine-tuned for life. It's like everything works together. All these systems counterbalance one another. Um, equilibrium is established. Um, you know, uh, these conditions are made just right for for uh, the stars to cool, the planets to form, for life for life to evolve, and and, and so forth. That that the universe is fine tuned. It's almost like it's designed. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is unnecessary. Everything is exactly as it should be, as it needs to be for this existence to happen. So all of these things come from the feeling of awe, the observation of beauty and design. Um, all of these things you, you experience simply by observing the world around you. And these are things that they, they get you thinking. You're, they, they get you asking questions. They get you thinking about intention, purpose, and meaning beyond just the facts that you're encountering. And this brings us to the first bit that I want to talk to you about. I'm going to call it, Is There a God? Can we know anything about it? This is my first section. And uh, again, what I'm going to do here is try to not necessarily go back and forth in the conversation, but pull pieces of the conversation out that we can, that we can think about and talk about. All right, so it opens like this. What truth is so obvious as the being of a God. What truth is so obvious as the being of a God? But what obscure questions occur concerning that divine being? His attributes, his plans of providence? Concerning these, human reason has not reached any determination. The question is not concerning the being, but the nature of God. The essence of that supreme mind his attributes, the manner of his existence. So a couple of interesting things here. At least one of the uh, three having this discussion is making this statement about the existence of God being obvious, being self-evident. Right? The truth is so obvious as the being of God. So it's almost like that's not a question. And we'll see in a little bit why, uh, why that uh, assumption is being made, but so it's not a question of whether God exists. It's a question of what is God? What's the manner of his existence? What are his attributes? What is God? It's, it's, it's fine to acknowledge that God must exist, but can we know anything about God? Anything at all? And the point that they're making here is that human reason can't tell you anything about God beyond the fact that God exists. The other thing that's important here that I think is interesting is that he calls God the supreme mind. And it happens early in, in the dialogue where this idea of God as a supreme mind comes up. Now, God, thinking about God and mind as being related is something we've talked about on the podcast before, but it's, an, it's not an idea... It's not an orthodox idea. It's not an idea that I think had great traction in antiquity but it's becoming more and more accepted today we we talked a lot about panpsychism in the early days of the podcast which basically assumes something like mind in matter 
We talked also about idealism a lot, which basically talks about um, the material reality existing within within mind or being composed of what Bernardo Castro calls mind stuff. And a lot of people in that field think about phys- the physical world as being some kind of illusion. Um, there's a kind of a hot topic in physics today that's this holographic theory, which is sort of on along the same lines, really, where you get the physics of, of this, this sort of illusionism in, in holographic theory. So it has a lot of traction today, but I didn't really expect to see it in the dialogue, and I didn't expect to see it so early in the dialogue. So it's like if I'm taking only my experience of my life in the world around me, is it reasonable to think that I will connect my capacity of mind and and assume that God is something like that? Why might that be the case? Think about that. Would you, you know, would you uh, examine your experience of the world and your experience of yourself and think to yourself, this this faculty of thought and fantasy and dreaming and thinking and speaking all this stuff that flows from our mind awareness and memory and all that is that spiritual is that so contrary to the physical world that we're we're searching for another explanation i think i think you could you could see that for an ancient person to see that without the benefit of modern science and the progress of philosophy it seems pretty amazing but there you have it. All right, it continues. Let us become sensible of the limits of human reason, the deceits of our senses, the contradictions which adhere to the idea of matter, cause and effect, space, time, motion. When these topics are displayed in their full light, who can retain confidence in this frail faculty of reason? With what assurance can we decide concerning the origin of worlds? Okay, so the, I mean, the point's pretty straightforward. Human reason is finite, and it is not infallible, right? It's not infallible. That's why he's talking about the deceit of our senses. You know, we look at things, we make assumptions about what's there. Sometimes we're wrong about that. Sometimes our senses fail us. Sometimes uh, it's an optical illusion, right? There are reasons why we cannot trust our senses entirely. And this has really always been the foundation, for me anyway, of philosophy, um, you know, of that urge to philosophy. It's when you understand that your experience of the world is not perfect, it makes you wonder what the world is outside of your experience, what it really is. What are you wrong about in your assumptions and in your perceptions? Is there more to the world than you imagine? Well, the answer to that, of course, is yes. Can I talk about uh, an example? I think I stole it from David Chalmers. But I talk about an example from time to time about a human being observing an ordinary mundane thing, like a cat walking along the street. You look and you see a cat on the street, and you get a perception of a furry mammal walking along the street. But what you don't observe is most of that phenomenon. You don't observe um, the details um, of that cat. You don't observe um, 
the cells, the microscopic level, the atomic level. You don't see any of that activity, right? You only see this abstract, simplified thing. So there's more, much, much more to the world that we know exists than what we can see. So there are limits to human reason. There are limits to sense perception. And the question is, with what assurances can we decide concerning the origin of worlds? Is there anything about human reason and our senses, about our experience, that we can rely on to answer a question about what caused existence if we can't even answer a question about the cat on the street? That's sort of the idea. And it goes on. He says, when we carry our speculations to the creation of the universe, the existence of spirits, of one universal spirit existing without beginning and end, we have here got quite beyond the reach of our faculties. We know not how far we ought to trust our reasoning in such a subject. We are entirely guided by a kind of instinct. So, more of the same. You know, How are we supposed to use human reason and our experience to make sense of something so different from the world around us, so different from um, you know, what we can observe? The existence of spirits, the beginning before time, you know, this idea of God. How are we supposed to reason anything about that? And should we even trust, you know, the reason and senses that we have to such a abstract and, and sublime topic as that? But then the last bit here I think is interesting because he says we are we are entirely guided by a kind of instinct. And so what this is telling me is that reason and perception are not really the faculties that we're relying on when we're talking about the existence of a God or God. What we're relying on is a kind of instinct. It's a religious instinct. It's something that's within us, that's common to human beings. It's part of the reason why religion exists you know, in all people from all of time. We have something like an instinct towards it. And instincts, they're very, they're very, like, they're unconscious things, you know? They're not something that we can control. We're not, they're not something that we can examine or manipulate the way we can ideas. So, what can we know about God from an instinct? He says, God's being is self evident. Nothing exists without a cause, and the original cause of this universe, whatever it be, we call God. Whoever scruples this fundamental truth deserves ridicule, but we ought never to imagine that we comprehend the attributes of this divine being. Our ideas reach no further than our experience, and we have no experience of divine attributes. All right, so when we started this section and we talked about um, what truth is so obvious as the being of a God, the reason for that statement is spelled out here. God's being is self-evident. Why? Because nothing exists without a cause. The fact that there is existence implies a cause. And that cause, whatever it is, we can't say, but whatever that might be, that's what we mean when we say God. And then he says something which I sort of agree with, really. Whoever scruples with this is an idiot and should be ridiculed. The fact that existence is implies a cause. 
And even if we can know nothing about that cause, we can, we can at least give it a name, God. So anybody who disagrees with that is an idiot or hasn't thought it through or is, I don't know what. And I kind of agree with this. I don't know how to get around this. We'll get into some, there's a basically a little caveat. We'll get into that later. But I generally agree with this statement. God's being is self-evident because nothing exists without a cause. Because something exists, you and I and the world around us, there must be something behind it. And that thing we call God. And that brings me to my next, you know what, before I jump to the next section, let me focus on this last bit here. He says, our ideas reach no further than our experience. So I don't know if you buy that entirely. I'm not sure I do exactly, especially in our modern era of high technology. Lots of new things have, have you know, are invented every day. Um, those new ideas don't exactly come from our experience, right? If they came from our experience, they would already exist. They don't exist, and so we have this capacity for fantasy. We have this capacity for novelty that I think that I think pushes back against this idea that our ideas reach no further than our experience. But assuming that's the case, assuming we agree with that, he says, we don't have any experience of God. And so we can't have any ideas about God. Our ideas reach no further than our experience and we do not experience God. And I want to push back on that too. Do we experience God? Listen, listen if you aren't a mystic, if you've never had um, an experience of God like that, a mystical experience, if you've never had you know, an answered prayer, if you've never seen the sky open and angels descend and, and, and giving you prophecy, if you don't have an experience like this, do, have you ever had an experience of God? Some people will say no. But I would suggest to you that if something like a mind can be associated with God like we said earlier and you have an experience of your mind then maybe you do have an experience of God if you interact with other people who also presumably have a mind then you've interacted with God in a manner of speaking if we can extend that quality of mind to the cosmos then your experience of all of the physical reality that you experience day to day, those are experiences of God. So when they say our ideas reach no further than our experience and we have no experience of God, I don't know that I buy either of those propositions. But you can understand why somebody might, might say that. And that brings us to our next section, which is called what God is like. Okay, so if we're... If we're basically overcoming the, obje the objection that God might not exist, if we think it's a given that God exists, what can we know about it, God? Is there anything we can know beyond whatever it is we're calling God exists? So the dialogue at, at this point brings up a historical character, a 17th century Catholic philosopher named uh, Nicholas um, Malbronk, I'm going to probably mispronounce that, uh, Father Malbronk. And he has um, a quote that they, that they use in the dialogue and kind of blew my mind, and I want to read it to you. So what is God like? Now, Father Malbronk suggests 
quote, we ought to believe that God comprehends matter without being material and spirit without being spirit. His true name is he that is or being without restriction, all being, being infinite and universal. Now, I love that. I think it's very Eastern sounding. It sounds like, you know, um, Vedanta Hinduism or Taoism or something like that, um, which I which I which I also like. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because he's talking about being, and in, whenever you hear that word being, and we're not dealing with like idealism, um, the only reference I have to this type of language is from Hinduism, talking about being and non-being. What is being? Now this this quote is really tied to this idea that God's that the existence of God is self-evident because nothing exists without a cause, right? So what Malbrook is saying is not exactly in the sense of the universe being caused or created. It's about the possibility that the universe could be created. Like, what is the background on which the cosmos is built, is, it's established? What is reality at its base level? So this is something, this is something that we call being. You know, being is the here and now. It's the physical world or what it's built upon. I mean, we call ourselves human being. And we look at other creatures and their different types of beings, right? But all of these beings exist, you might say, in the world, in the cosmos, in the universe. But you might also say in being itself. We are beings within being. So this idea of a general infinite being, a universal being, is the background on which reality can can exist and that's god's true name that which is when when the bible says god is i am this is this is what's being described being that which makes reality possible that's a very interesting definition or or conceptualization of god it's not like a monotheistic creator, the way we're accustomed to. It's not like a transpersonal force like you see in polytheism with the, with the Greek gods and uh, the Egyptian gods and, and all these sort of uh, pantheons from classical antiquity. It's something different. It's something very Eastern, right? And from the lips of a Catholic priest, no less. If we're examining only our experience our lives, and the experience of the world around us, we cannot deny the idea of being, because that's what we are, and that's what we observe around us. That's all that exists, some form of being. And seeing that commonality allows us to abstract whatever it is that being is, in the same way we try to abstract whatever it is God is, that which is responsible for creation, that which is responsible for reality. All right, it goes on, he says, look around the world. You will find it to be nothing but one great machine, subdivided into an infinite number of lesser machines. The curious adapting of means to ends throughout all nature resembles exactly human designs and intelligence. Since the effects resemble each other, we infer that the author of nature 
is similar to the mind of man. By this argument, we prove the existence of a deity and his similarity to human mind and intelligence. So what we're seeing here is, a, is an old argument, something that Aristotle talked about. It's the argument by design, the argument for the existence of God based upon this idea of design. He says, the world is nothing but a big machine made up of a bunch of smaller machines. And you can see that to, to some degree. We can see it in the example of our bodies very well because we know of cells and we know of atoms. We can see these smaller and smaller scale systems that, that you know basically stack up to create this macro being that we call a human body. We're a bunch of smaller machines that, that compose this larger machine. And the whole world seems to be like that. The whole cosmos seems to be like that. And because everything works together so well, and because everything is intentional and nothing is wasted and all this sort of stuff, um, it seems to be designed. You know, there's no way that it, everything could be fitting so perfectly together and working so perfectly at, you know, as intended, if not intelligently designed. Things, in, you know, random things do not look or feel or exist this way. And then he says, since the effects resemble each other, we infer that the author of nature, God, is similar to the mind of a man, right? We understand, because of our mind, design and intelligence. Because that's required, intelligence is required for design, whatever design the cosmos must also be intelligent in some way like, like we are. Now we can say God is far more sophisticated God is infinite and we're finite. There's differences between our mind and God's mind, but there's something fundamental that connects them. And so by knowing, by knowing what it's like to have a mind, by being a human being, by observing other creatures with minds, we know something about God because God is something like a human mind. We know that because the world has been designed. So this is the argument by design. It's a compelling argument. You know, there's a lot of a lot of, you know, atheists that have arguments around this that talk about probability and infinite, you know, infinite uh, universes and and this is just random and you know, they they can explain that all you want, but the fact is from what we can experience, I can't experience other universes, parallel dimensions. I can't experience that. Because I can't. This is a very compelling argument. He says, matter may contain the source of order within itself, as well as mind does. But by experience, we find there is a difference between them. Throw several pieces of steel together. They will never arrange themselves. But the ideas in a human mind arrange themselves to form the plan of a house. Experience proves that there is an original principle of order in mind, not in matter. From similar effects, we infer similar causes. All right, so now this idea of order comes up, and it's related to this idea of being. And when we look around and we experience being, whether it be ourselves or the cosmos, we notice that things are ordered, right? Our bodies are ordered. 
you know, chemical changes are, are ordered and structured. Uh, atomic uh, interactions are the same. Um, the forces of, of nature are the same. Everything is ordered. It follows laws. You know, uh, there's such such a thing as form. Um, you know, so everything is ordered and finite and so forth. This is what we see. So that order is related to this idea of design. How does that order get here? Right? He says, if we throw a bunch of steel on the floor, it's never going to arrange itself. It, it requires a human being. It requires mind to arrange it into some meaningful, um, you know, some meaningful way. So order requires mind, and we see order all around us. Design requires mind, and we see design all around us. This is the idea. And he offers this idea that it could be that this principle of order is in matter, or it could be that it's in mind. But because throwing a bunch of steel on the floor never arranges themselves into anything, that can kind of rule out the idea that whatever principle of order exists doesn't exist in matter. It's external to that. It requires mind. And then again, from similar effects, we infer similar causes. So God must have mind or be mind in some way. All right, this is Demia speaking. She says, I was from the beginning scandalized with this resemblance which is asserted between the deity and human creatures and must conceive it to imply a degradation of the supreme being. Thought, design, intelligence, such as we discover in men, is no more than one of the principles of the universe as well as heat or cold, attraction or repulsion. What privilege has this little agitation of the brain we call thought, that we must make it the model of the whole universe? With what propriety can we assign it for the original cause of all things? <laughs> oh, Demia. Oh, Demia. Okay, so I get the sense that Demia is something like the materialist atheist types today and she's basically saying uh, I'm astonished that you would say, suggest just because you have a mind that that must somehow be associated with God she's like I'm astonished seems to me that this thing that you're calling mind is just a it's just a principle of the universe it's a natural principle of the universe just like gravitation or thermodynamics and you can see that idea attached to modern philosophical uh, ideas like panpsychism, which we're going to talk about uh, in some detail. The idea that mind and matter are basically one thing. Matter, matter has a property or an aspect that's mental, and that's true of all matter. And she says something like that. Can't thought and intelligence, can't that be just a natural part of, you know, a part of the world? Just like thermodynamics and gravity. Then she says something a little bit peevish, a little bit like naysaying, like <laughs> she's coming across as a little bit nihilistic, a little bit like these atheists sound to me. They're just, in my interactions with them on Twitter anyway, just insufferable people for the for, for you know, large part. She says, what privilege has this little agitation of the brain we call thought that we make it the model of the universe? It's like insulting, right? Belittling. This little agitation of the brain we call thought. Is that what it is? Is thought just a little agitation of the brain? Just a little little electrical chemical uh, change 
in a physical state. That's, that's just a, something you can brush off and disregard. It's nothing. Just a little nothing. Really? Thought? The thing that created language and music and builds buildings and roads and aqueducts and sewers and, you know, poetry and, and uh, art. That, that little thing, that little meaningless agitation that we can just... Why make that the model of the universe? Well, maybe some of the th reasons I just suggested. Because the fruits of mind are tremendous and they're not related to the physical in any way we understand. You know, the creation of a poem and the way it makes you feel when you read it or hear it spoken, none of that can be explained by, by the physical laws of nature. It's a creative organ, a creative faculty. That which creates, that's, that's mind, you know. Why make that the model of the universe? Well, because the model of the universe, because the universe is something created. It's something artistic. It's something beautiful. It's something that resonates with our mind in all of these ways that aren't physical. It should at least make you scratch your temple a little bit, Demia. She says, with what propriety can we assign it for the original cause of all things? Well, maybe because we experience a component of our existence that isn't physical. So if I'm looking for something that predates the physical or might be the cause of the physical, isn't that a good target? Isn't that a good prospect? That which we know exists, which isn't physical? Our sentience? All right, then it goes on. The ancient Platonists declare that intellect is not to be described, ascribed to the deity. And that our most perfect worship of him consists in a certain mysterious self-annihilation. It must be acknowledged that by representing the deity as similar to a human mind, we make ourselves the model of the whole universe. Okay, so making ourselves the model of the whole universe is a, is a caution. It's a caution against anthropomorphism. And if that word isn't familiar with, uh, to you. It's the idea of seeing things as though they were they were human. We make this mistake all the time when we when we're being poetic. When we talk about you know I don't know it's 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 raining and we say something like the heavens are crying. Well, the heavens don't cry, right? Rain is not tears. We're anthropomorphizing that these natural processes. We did this with the idea of God in very ancient times when we when we took this idea of whatever it is that's responsible for existence. And we pretended like it was a human body with a with a animal head, you know, in ancient Egypt. Or we we thought about it as a as a human body uh, with big breasts and hips, like we see in the ancient Stone Age Venus figurines. The moment we started to think about God as a human being, we're on this slippery slope. This is the idea that we have to we we want to caution ourselves against against believing that things that aren't human can be conceptualized as, as a human being or, or analogies can be made. Um, and even this idea of mind is suspect. And he says, again, he says, the Platonists don't think intellect should be ascribed to God at all. But then he says something interesting, and I probably could have left it out, but I didn't want to. He says that the Platonists believed that our most perfect worship of God consists in a certain mysterious self-annihilation. 
What is that? A certain mysterious self-annihilation. Well, the, uh, the reference here, almost certainly, is the uh, Eleusinian Mysteries. In ancient Greece, and Plato himself, as far as I know, attended the Eleusinian Mysteries. You go, you go to Eleusis, you go to the temple, you go through this private, secret experience, this mystery cult. And whatever this experience is, when you emerge, you, you have secret knowledge of the divine that you didn't have before, that is impossible to get in any other way. And the Eleusinian mysteries are believed by many to be a psychedelic, um, mystical experience, a religious ritual involving psychoactive substances that cause exactly this, a certain mysterious self-annihilation. And anybody who has had a mystical experience, a psychedelically induced mystical experience, and has been selfless, who's had this ego-death experience, this self-annihilation comes to mind. When you have this ego-death experience, everything that you associate with yourself goes away, right? Recognizing the way your face looks in a mirror, the way your voice sounds, your thoughts, your memories, your preferences, all of that goes away. But you're still there. Whatever it is underneath all of that, that you are, that thing that I was calling being earlier, that thing is still there. And you realize that what that thing is, is the basis of reality. It's God. It's what's underneath everything else. It's what's behind the ones and zeros in the matrix, that kind of thing. And you come to that understanding through a mysterious self-annihilation. I just thought that was brilliant. All right, but we want to be cautious against anthrop anthropomorphizing, right? We don't, we don't want to assume God is like a human being if that's all we're doing is assuming. And then we're, that, again, that's a slippery slope. That's going to lead us into error. And so he says, consider what you assert when you re represent the deity as similar to a human mind. The soul of a man is a composition of faculties, passions, sentiments, ideas, united into oneself. When it reasons, the ideas give place to new opinions, new passions, new feelings, which continually diversify the mental scene. How is this compatible with that perfect immutability theists ascribe to the deity? What he is he ever has been and ever will be. A mind that is totally immutable is a mind which has no thought, no reason, no will, in a word, no mind at all. Okay. So basically the point that's being made here is that a human mind, whatever that is, is constantly changing. Right? When you reason, when you think, when you experience, your ideas, your feelings, your preferences, they all change. They're constantly transforming with new information, new experiences. The contents of your mind and the processing of your mind and everything that we think of when we think of mind is constantly transforming. And yet, when people talk about God, especially theists, when they talk about God, they talk about God being immortal and unchanging, right? That bedrock thing behind experience, this idea of being that we talked about, that is constant and unchanging and eternal. So how can a, a, a constantly changing mental landscape that we experience ever be compatible with this idea of an immutable, unchanging bedrock reality that we call God? 
And then he says, a mind like that, that's immutable and unchanging, isn't a mind at all. So there's an assumption here. The assumption is that God is immutable. And, and you kind of want to agree with it when he says what God is, he has always been and always will be. It's like, yeah, okay, so maybe God is immutable in that way. Um, but th that assumption, I think, is faulty. Because you can imagine that what that underlying thing is, is something like transformation, the process of transformation. Or maybe God itself is constantly transforming in the same way that our mental landscape is constantly transforming. And that thing that is immutable and unchangeable underneath our reality is transformation. That immutable thing is mutability, right? There are ways of thinking about this that poke holes in this assumption, which, which I think are valid. But this thing here where he says a mind that is totally immutable is not, is not a mind. It doesn't think, it doesn't reason, it has no will. This, this is also telling because it talks about thought, reason, and will being associated with mind. That, that's something that we agree we have thought, reason, will. Um, we also generally believe that if God exists, it must also have these these things, will, right? Um, sometimes we talk about the laws of nature, right? Being something like the will of God, right? If, if nothing can um, act contrary to the laws of nature, then that must be the desire of God, that things operate that way. So maybe God has a will. Um, and, and when he says that that an immutable mind is no mind at all. A mind that doesn't change is no mind at all. Um, well, I, I sort of beg to differ. I want to I wanna point to something like the unconscious, this idea of the unconscious. Because it's something like this, un, we, we, we think about this psychologically as this underlying part of our mind. We have the conscious part and the unconscious part. And the unconscious part is where the conscious part rests. It's like the base that it rests on. But we have no experience of that unconscious part. Even though it acts on us, um, practically, it is unchanging. It is this unknowable, immutable bedrock of our consciousness. There's this changing part, and then there's this stable part. And so, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the unconscious is no mind at all. I would just say that the conscious and unconscious are part of a whole. So there are ways of thinking about this, again, that poke holes in this idea. I don't think God need be immutable. And I think there are ways of, uh, of conceptualizing it where you can say, God, you know, God is not immutable and yet still is always, you know, the same. This underlying constant principle is something like transformation. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, it makes sense to me from a from a philosophical level and from a practical level. You look around at the world, you can see things are always changing, constantly in motion, inter interacting, you know, eroding. Things are always changing. You look at yourself, you can see you're growing, you're maturing, both physically and mentally, constantly changing. So, change does seem to be fundamental. It's difficult to find anything that's not changing. You know, everything is changing. Atoms are decaying, right? Everything is constantly in motion and changing. So it does seem fundamental. And so while we're talking about what's fundamental, this, this brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the fact of order.
And it goes like this. A mental world of ideas requires a cause as much as a material world of objects. If the material world rests upon an ideal world, this ideal world must rest upon some other, and so on, without end. It were better never to look beyond the material world. By supposing it to contain the principle of its order within itself, we really assert it to be God. All right, so let's pump the brakes for just a second. So we have this um, sort of circular picture that, that he's, being, he's painting for us here. He says, if we say that the, that the material world rests upon some um, um, mental power or some mental world, if God is mind and created the physical world from mind, then you know, we can explain the physical world using this idea of the mental but then we still have to explain the mental. So we have this circular reasoning problem. We have this infinite succession of causes, right? You know, uh, what's the cause of me? Well, my mom and dad. What's the cause of them? Their mom and dad. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. It never ends. This is what we have here. What is the ultimate cause? If, if we say that mind is the ultimate cause, we still have to ask the question, what causes mind? And this is why he says, it's better that we don't even bring up mind at all, that we just look at the physical world. Then we can avoid this circular problem or this infinite succession. Then he says, by supposing the material world to contain the principle of order within itself, we're really asserting it to be God. Now this is, this is important. It goes back to something we talked about earlier. This is we're talking about basically dualism, mind and matter. Are they separate things? Are they one thing? The panpsychist idea is maybe that they're one thing. And so this is kind of the idea here is if mind exists within matter, then this principle of order, which, we, which we're saying comes from mind, right? You can't throw a bunch of metal together and expect it will organize itself. Only a mind does that. So if this, idea, if this uh, faculty of mind exists within matter, if it exists within the material world, then the material world is what we mean when we say God. If the cosmos has this ordering principle within itself, if it has mind within itself, if the world, if the cosmos is alive and sentient, then what we mean by God is the cosmos. And that's a very pantheistic or panentheistic idea. It's an idea that we see very common in uh, tribal religions and very ancient primitive religions. So is it possible this idea is something that you would come to simply by your experience of the world? The cosmos is God, something very much like that. And it's right in line with the panpsychist idea as well. It's very close um, similarity between pantheism, animism, and panpsychism. And we do see, you know, Animism, again, another very common ancient form of religion. All right, so we'll go on. It says, when it is asked what cause produces order and the ideas of the supreme being, can any other reason be assigned than that such is the nature of the deity? But why a similar answer will not be equally satisfactory without recourse to an intelligent creator? It is only to say that such is the nature of a material object and that they are all possessed of order. 
So again, this is an extension of that. Does the order come from mind? Or does it come, or is it just built right into matter? Does the order come from outside or is it right there already within it? And and if order is imposed from outside, from a supreme being, where did the order come from in the supreme being? So this is just a, a you know an extension of this of this argument. And then we'll close it out where he says, the order and arrangement of nature bespeak an intelligent cause. You ask me, what is the cause of this cause? I know not. I care not. I have found a deity, and here I stop my inquiry. So, so the, the question is, if order comes from mind, where did the order come from in the mind of God, right? If order comes from mind, and this is, this is God, where did, where did that order come from in God? And he's like, look, we found the cause, and now you're asking me for the cause of the cause, and I'm not even, I'm not going there. Why? Why would, I, why would we ask that question? Order belongs to God naturally, belongs to mind naturally. They're inseparable. Why am I looking for another cause here? And with all this talk about mind and relating human beings and God and trying to make analogies between them, we're going to go into the next section, which I'm going to call implications of anthropomorphism. So these are the more of the cautions around this. Can we... Can we relate mind to both God and human beings? Can we make a connection between human beings and God through mind? And what is the slippery slope that we talked about earlier? So it opens like this. Like effects prove like causes. This, you say, is the sole theological argument. By this reasoning, you renounce all claim to infinity in the deity. For the cause ought to be proportioned to the effect, and the effect is not infinite. What pretensions have we to ascribe that attribute to the divine being? Secondly, you have no reason for ascribing perfection to the deity. So what is he saying here? So we make this argument here, as, as these three people are talking through this idea, that like effects prove like causes. If I have a mind and I'm capable of design and I see the cosmos is designed, then there must be a mind associated with it because it wasn't my mind. It must be some primordial cosmic mind. This is how we arrive at God and mind as, as some sort of a connection because, because I can design and have a mind. God must also have a mind. And so he's saying, this is your theological argument. But by this reason, you can't claim God to be infinite, which we generally do, right? Because we look at the cosmos, we see what the effect of the cause, right, of the mind of God is. It's this material cosmos all around us. And everything in it, perhaps even the cosmos itself, is finite. It's not infinite. So if the cause is infinite and the effect is finite, we can't call God infinite at all. And we can't call God perfect either. And these are things we want to ascribe to God. Maybe we can't. And then he goes on, he says, And what can you produce to prove the unity of the deity? A great number of men join in building a ship, 
Why may not several deities combined in contriving a world? This is only so much greater similarity to human affairs. Men renew their species by generation, and this is common to all living creatures. Why must this circumstance be excluded from those deities? Why not assert the deity to be corporeal and to have eyes and a nose and mouth and ears? Right? So this is the slippery slope. It's like if we're going to say God has mind, if we're going to say he's like a, a human being, then how can we say he's infinite? How can we say he's perfect? How can we say he's one? Monotheism, God is one thing. How can we assume that? You look around, you see what gets created and designed by human beings oftentimes takes more than one human being. Lots of human beings working in conjunction. So why can't we assume then that there are many, many gods? Of course, we know most of the classical world did believe that. He's like, that would make it much similar to a human being. If you're going to use this idea of mind, then how can we not throw away all of these, these human faculties? He said, men renew their species by generation, right? Sexual procreation. So why not say that gods do that too? Why not say gods are not spiritual but material, just like we are? Why not say they have a mouth and eyes and a nose and ears? This is the slippery slope. But there is a retort. There is a retort. And he says, I see that by the utmost indulgence of your imagination, you never get rid of the hypothesis of design in the universe, but are obliged at every turn to have recourse to it. And this I regard as sufficient foundation for religion. So, so... That's a bit of a zing moment. But what he's basically saying is, you know, you can play with this idea of mind and anthropomorphizing God all you want. But the whole time you're talking about this, you, you can't, you can't um, bypass what started this conversation. The idea of or the fact of design in the cosmos. And because you can't do that, my point stands and that's sufficient evidence for the existence of God. And that brings us to the next section, which was equally interesting and blew my mind. I'm going to call the section Philosophy of Organism. Now, you may recognize that phrase because we did many episodes on a philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead. He's a more or less modern philosopher. He lived far long after... David Hume was already dead. But what we found here in the dialogue are lots of ideas that sound like Whitehead's philosophy of organism or his process philosophy. So that's why I called this section philosophy of organism. See if you can pick up on it. And I love this first bit. This first quote opens like this. If we survey the universe, it bears a great resemblance to an animal body and seems actuated with life and motion. The world, therefore, I infer, is an animal, and the deity is the soul of the world actuating it. Man, man, I love that. Because the image that you get is the cosmos as the body of God, and the spirit of God being the 
life force within it, the force within the, the cosmos that spins the sun, the, the stars, and, and you know, um, moves the heavens and, and all the things that, that are happening on that level. Just the same way we imagine our human body is possessed by a spirit that allows us to move and to act and to think. We just sort of level that up like a Russian nesting doll to the cosmic scale, and we see this larger macroorganism, the largest macroorganism, the cosmos as a whole, being God. And this is really what Alfred North Whitehead suggested in his philosophy. That's why it's called philosophy of organism. He believes that all of reality is something like a living organism. And, and it's made up of composite organisms. So I am one of 7 billion people on Earth, right? Earth is something like a cell in the body of this cosmos, right? So it's like there's these parallels between a human body and this larger macroorganism. And, uh, and, and then the further in you zoom into a human body, you see the same thing on smaller scales. So you get this fractal kind of Russian nesting doll image of lar the largest being, uh, you know, um, being made up of all these smaller versions, this fractal sort of picture. And very much what um, Alfred North Whitehead uh, described. Another thing that, that I love about this statement is he says, the world, therefore, I infer, is an animal, and the deity is the soul of the world. It's just this phrase, soul of the world. I, I don't know why it strikes me so powerfully, but it does. There's a um, passage in a holy book from um, ancient Persia called the Avesta. They're the um, Zoroastrian religion in their holy book. And they have a passage in there that uh, where God is described as the soul of creation. The soul of creation. And it just reminded me of that. The deity is the soul of the world. God is the soul of creation. Man, I love that. I love that. It goes on, though. He says, Yet the world has no organs of sense, no seat of thought, no one origin of action. It seems to bear a stronger resemblance to a vegetable than to an animal. The cause, therefore, of the world, we may infer to be something analogous to a, ve a vegetable, to vegetation. So, so the cosmos is something like an animal, and, and he's saying, you know what? Really, it's more like a vegetable. It doesn't have organs of sense. It doesn't have eyes and ears and a nose, exactly. Unless, of course, you consider ours to be the eyes and ears of the universe. Um, so, so he makes this, this connection to maybe an earlier, more primitive form of life being a better analogy. And I kept this in only because we did a few episodes on Alan Watts a while back, and that's an analogy Alan Watts used. And he was trying to describe how being emerges from non-being. You know, how something comes from nothing. Trying to explain sort of poetically or philosophically what that, you know, what that is. And he said something like, being emerges like, like fruit being dropped off of a tree or, or like hair growing from a, from a, uh, you know, a human body. It's, it's like growing from some deep fundamental bedrock foundation source 
It's growing and dropping its fruit, and the fruit are our material reality. So we get a similar a similar um, take from Hume as we got from Watson. I think that's I don't know what it means, but I think that's interesting that the analogy uh, was used in the 1700s, and it was used by Alan Watts in the in the I don't know what it was the 70s or something. Um, a couple more here. Suppose that matter were thrown into any position by a blind, unguided force. It is evident that this first position must be the most disorderly imaginable. If the actuating force cease after this operation, matter must remain forever in disorder. But if it continues in matter, this first position will immediately give place to a succession of changes. The original force gives a perpetual restlessness to nature, to, to matter rather. This we find to be the case with the universe. Each individual is perpetually changing. All right, so basically what's being suggested here, going back to this idea of just throwing matter, you know, steel on the ground randomly, it's never going to organize itself. Going back to that. He's saying if matter were thrown into just any random position, blind and unguided, if there was no intelligence behind it and it was just random probability, then, then the world would remain in that same state of chaos. It would never change. It would just be in that same state of chaos. It certainly wouldn't organize itself. He says, but if that actuating force remains in matter forever... If whatever it is that brought it about remains there forever and constantly is this, is this force of change within it, then that would line up much closer to what we see around us, everything constantly changing. So whatever it is that gives restlessness to matter, you can imagine that like the soul within our human body, whatever it is that gives us, you know, uh, what what Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer called it, are restlessly striving. There's this human condition to constantly want to be acting and doing and changing and growing. And we see that all around us in the world as well. What causes that? What's the cause of that? That's that, that would be what we would expect if the cause of reality itself, the thing that we're calling God, if it remains in matter and constantly continues it's this process of creation. And what that, what that will do is, is create constant change and transformation. And that is what we see in the universe. So what's being proposed here is that the force of creation, whatever it is that God is, it's not just created and gone away. It doesn't just establish the order and the systems and disappear. That it's, it's with us all the time. Something like the soul possessing our physical body. It's like God inhabiting matter. That's a good, a good uh, uh, visual. Imagine all matter is like that at every level. Then you have some idea of what Alfred North Whitehead was proposing. The other thing I want to mention here is um, when he says that uh, if matter were thrown into any position by blind, unguided force, it is evident that this first position uh, will be the most disorderly imaginable. So this is the idea that if the world is random, if reality is this random accident of nature, then you would expect that its original state would be the most disorderly and that it would become ordered. Like, that's how it's described, right? 
the cosmos. Um, the cosmos falls under the force of gravity, and, and that order takes hold, and it starts creating. It starts taking all the random dust in the universe and condensing it into planets. So you see order being established over time, becomes more orderly over time. But this, of course, isn't the case. Physicists will tell you what the law of entropy suggests, is that in the beginning, things were the most ordered, and they're getting progressively more disordered as time goes on. So if things were just thrown into, into disorder randomly in the beginning, then you would expect that state would be the most disordered. The physicists are going to say, no, that state is the most ordered. The singularity is the most ordered the universe has ever or will ever be. So it couldn't be unguided forces. It couldn't be random blind forces that cause this. Now that we have the, the benefit of you know, modern physics, we, we can just rule that right the fuck out. So God is the force of transformation imbibing in life and in matter. A few more. He says, whatever exists must have a cause, it being impossible for anything to be the cause of its own existence. And mounting up from effects to causes, we must either go in tracing an infinite succession or must have recourse to some ultimate cause. So this is a good summary of something we talked about a bit ago, but before I uh, jump in there, just let's just focus on this um, first sentence. Whatever exists must have a cause. So this is exactly what Alfred North Whitehead said. He called them actual entities. The cause of something existing are the, are the actual entities that constitute it. So this goes back to that Russian nesting doll image. There's a whole bunch of experiences that come together to make me. So the cause of me are all the experiences that, that you know, came first, that created me. And that process goes on up and down forever infinitely. Actual entities compose larger actual entities. They can they compose larger ones still. And and you know on the smaller scale, just just the opposite, vice versa. This is the the uh, Whiteheadian model of reality. So everything must have a cause. That's true in Whitehead's system. Um, but then he, then he says it being impossible for anything to be the cause of its own existence. And this is an interesting idea because either. God has a cause, just like everything has a cause. Or God is the only causeless thing. God is the infinite foundational thing, which is, I'm more sympathetic to that idea. And this is what he's saying here, where he says, from causes to effects, we must either go on in tracing an infinite succession, or we must have some ultimate cause. So either the cosmos was created, or it is infinite. Right? Either God was created, or God is infinite. This is sort of true, a, a, a fair question to ask of anything. If something didn't have a beginning and it exists, then it must be infinite. And so this is really the larger, the largest uh, ontological question. Is there a beginning or is there only forever? And he goes on, he says... In the infinite chain of causes and effects, each effect is determined by the cause which preceded. But the whole eternal chain taken together is not caused by anything. 
The question is, why this succession of causes existed from eternity? External causes, there were supposed to be none. So was it nothing that caused this eternal chain? He says, but that can never produce anything. Nothing can never produce anything. We must therefore have recourse to a necessarily existent being who carries the reason of his existence in himself. Consequently, there is a deity. All right, so this is, this is for, forming this question perfectly. Either there's an infinite chain of cause and effect that has no beginning, that is eternal and fundamental, or there is some fundamental starting point, some unmoved mover like Aristotle would say. He concludes that that means there must be an unmoved mover. But I would suggest, and I think Alfred North Whitehead would too, is that there really isn't much of a difference conceptually between God as the unmoved mover, as the first cause, or this eternal process, this you know, no beginning and no end, eternal process of cause and effect. That we can see the same way as God, this eternal power that's, cre- that's creative, that's generative, uh, that forms some bedrock foundation for reality? Can we call that God? Can we call it this eternal process of cause and effect? That's exactly what Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead would say. Process is what he calls it. That the fundamental reality is a process. Here's a question for you. Can God be a process? And what does that mean? All right, he goes on, he says, Why may not the material universe be the necessarily existent being? We dare not affirm that we know all the qualities of matter, and for all we can determine, it may contain some qualities which would make it its non-existence impossible. So here we have pantheism and panpsychism proposed in one sentence, basically. Said, so why may not this this the material universe be the necessarily existent being? Why can't the cosmos be God? That's pantheism. Then he says, we dare not affirm that we know everything about matter. So might it be that matter contains some quality that would make its non-existence impossible? Might matter contain mind, that originating principle of order? That's panpsychism. Isn't that amazing? And he says, look around this universe. What an immense profusion of beings. How hostile and destructive to each other. How insufficient for their own happiness. The whole presents nothing but the idea of a blind nature, impregnated by a great vivifying principle, and pouring forth without discernment or parental care, her maimed children. Okay, so so that's just a nihilistic thing to say. I imagine that was Demia who said that, but I can't I, I don't know for sure. Uh, what he's what, what he's basically saying is look around the universe, and what you find is it's full of beings. And everything's always trying to kill and eat each other, right? And and no creature has what they need sufficiently within themselves, right? They have to go out and, and take from something, from, from someone. They have to kill something, right? So you've you've got this, you've got this, um, killer be killed, um, 
everybody eating each other. Uh, you get this image that's very dark and uh, savage, basically. And we understand that. We understand that nature is savage. And the way that it's, this is described is the whole presents nothing, right? The cosmos presents nothing but this idea of, a, of blind nature impregnated by a vivifying principle, a blind nature which can create but doesn't care about what it creates, right? It, it, it creates without discernment or parental care. So nature blindly just produces and has no emotions, has no will, has no, um, you know, nothing else that, that you might make an analogy to for a human being. It's blind and terrible and pointless and, and meaningless. It's random and probabilistic, governed by laws, but without sentient design or regard. So even with all of this being said, somebody in the group is still saying, I, I, I can't see any kind of intelligence behind this. It seems random. It seems unfeeling, uncaring. Whatever it is, it's not, it's not God as we understand it. And then the last quote I want to read to you goes like this. If we are not contented with calling the first and supreme cause God, what can we call him but mind, to which he justly supposes to bear a considerable resemblance? So maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe whatever God is is, is unfeeling and, and uh, you know, it's productive, but it's nothing like, like a, a mind. And then we've got this, uh, this last quote where he says, whatever God is, it must be something like a mind. Right? So there's no conclusion here. But this, this last bit, this last quote here really is idealism in a nutshell. It's like if we can't call God God, the supreme first cause, then we have to call it mind because it resembles mind, right? So that is idealism. So panentheism, panpsychism, idealism, all of that stuff we see in this dialogue coming out when people are asked, can you know anything about God just by experiencing the world? We can speculate and we have evidence and reason to do it that what God is like is something like the God of pantheism the God of panpsychism, the God of idealism. And that brings me to my conclusion. In this dialogue, we heard the opinions of three very different types of thinkers from classical antiquity. The Stoic, the orthodoxly religious, and the skeptic. With, of course, contributions from the likes of Seneca, the Platonists, and the rationalist Malbrick. Through the interactions of their ideas on the existence of God, many compelling speculations are made as to exactly what God is. Surprisingly, at least for me, this exchange posited ideas far beyond the traditional polytheism and monotheism ideas uh, we would recognize today as idealism, pantheism, and even panpsychism. The approach was that of natural religion. And the question is, can we know anything at all about what God is, what God wants, if anything, or even if God exists, merely through the experience of our lives? 
if we didn't have the benefit of revelation or, or a tradition of prophets, if there was no communication between the divine and the physical, if we truly are starting from a blank slate, what could we discover of God? Would we even ever come up with the idea of God? The participants in the dialogue considered their experience in the world around them and posited the argument by design, which observes that the cosmos looks and functions as if it were designed and therefore must be the result of something capable of design. And since design is the product of mind, a supreme mind was proposed as the nature of God. This is idealism to a T. It was observed, of course, that everything with a mind also has a body without exception. And so the cosmos itself was posited as the body of God. This is the argument of pantheism to a T. But idealism is resistant to reconciliation with pantheism. In idealism, reality is the product of mind. It is all in the head, as they say. Where pantheism elevates the material to the level of divinity, it is not an abstract spiritual mind that is fundamental, but matter itself. A reconciliation was offered, however, to my astonishment. It was proposed that the order we see in the world, the order we earlier called design, could be inherent in matter. It could be fundamental, not bestowed by anything supernatural. It was proposed that an as yet undiscovered quality of matter could be just this order-producing element. Stated differently, mind could be in matter and matter in mind. This is panpsychism to a T. All these ponderings and musings, only a few qualities of God were accepted without objection. So it is possible so if it is possible to learn anything from the world about the nature of God, if natural religion offers anything, it is this. God is being, and being is ordered. Now, it may be that being and order are synonyms, and it may be an open question if order comes from mind or is inherent within matter, or even if the dualism of mind and matter should be obliterated so that we can see mind within matter and vice versa. But this core remains. Being exists. This we cannot dispute. So either it was created or exists eternally. If it was created, we are free to make analogies about mind and design and come to understand God through our own experience. If it was not created but exists always, we find being to be the God we're seeking. It is the eternal and the all-creating. Since we are a being, it seems similarly fair to make analogies between our being and being with a capital B. This brings back to mind Seneca's words, to know God is to worship him, as well as the injunction inscribed on the temple of Apollo at Delphi, know thyself. If God is mind, 
either a great spiritual cosmic mind or as a fundamental property of matter, our experience, our very existence, is worship. We acknowledge our Creator with every thought. We experience it with every sense impression, and we hold it within ourselves. What we know with our minds and of our minds, all that we experience is God. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.